Welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio. Welcome to this episode of Manufacturing Talk Radio. We're here with Dr. Chris Keel, who is going to talk to us about neutral interest rates, industrial policy in the U.S., which is almost an unheard of thing, and the economy in general, which I define at the moment as kind of a Eeyore economy from Winnie the Pooh. Chris, welcome for joining us. <laughs> I am so glad you brought up ER. He was my favorite. Um, it was like I, I was all the other Pooh characters were like, no, no, I like I like ER. You know, he has the right attitude. That's why I became an economist. You know, I mean, it's just, <laughs> so um, neutral interest rates. Why are we bringing this up? And and what are they? And and what's the deal? For forty years. The notion among central banks has been that 1% is a neutral interest rate. That means that it's a rate that is neither so low that it stimulates growth, nor so high that it affects inflation. And it's always sort of been the standard. But now there's a lot of conversation that the neutral rate should be 2%, not 1%. If that is indeed the case, it would mean that the Fed really didn't start affecting the economy until February of this year, that the rate increases we saw last year weren't really having an impact. And if you look objectively, they weren't. I mean, they weren't impacting growth. They weren't impacting the unemployment rate, et cetera. So those who are supporting this notion of a 2% neutral rate point out that the job market is different than it used to be, much more resilient. They point out that there's a lot more money in the economy that the Fed has no control over. Fed's always had problems with the shadow banking system, but the shadow banking system is now huge and in some respects dwarfs the actual banking system. And all that is are non-bank financial intermediaries. It's like equity funds and venture funds and angel funds, insurance companies, captive lenders, um, like, for instance, the Fed was trying to convince GMAC not to make so many car loans. It's like, we're trying to control the, come on now. And GMAC, did, did, do you know what the GM in our name stands for? That's General Motors. We make cars. Our job is to get people into cars. Good luck with that inflation stuff you're doing. Don't ask us to do that. That's not our job. So that money is is kind of inflating um, the economy generally. And it kind of makes the point that maybe the Fed has to go five and a half, six percent, six and a half percent to really have an impact on the economy. Now, that's not a universal opinion yet, but just something to to think about that when people start to say, well, it's not, not going to go past five and a half. Mm -hmm, it might, um, you know, if, if, if that becomes more of a, of a thing, then we may see that increase higher than we thought. Hey, Tim. So there you go. There's a happy thought. Do you, do you know what Chris is talking about? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I do in about an hour ago. <laughs> yeah. Every so often I have to demonstrate that I can indeed talk in tongues like all the other economists, you know? <laughs> right. I what do I get thinking. the part where the, the Fed, if they go to six or six and a half, and the interest rate means somebody's getting unemployed. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I mean, 
when you when you think about the whole notion of interest rates being used to control the economy, you have to go back to Paul Volcker back in the 80s, where he was jamming interest rates up to 20 points. And somebody said, Paul, what are you doing? And he says, you do realize that controlling inflation is like hitting the economy with a baseball bat. The logic is that if you raise rates high enough, businesses have to fire everybody. If they fire everybody, then they can't make any money. If they can't make any money, they don't spend any money. And if they're not spending any money, nobody can raise their prices. There you go. But, Paul, everybody will be living in a dumpster. He goes, that's not my problem. I told you that it was going to be two to three years of recession, if you're lucky. And we got two to three years of recession. So controlling the economy is not subtle. Um, and that's we just have to deal with that. <laughs> I was in California at the time, and a good buddy of mine bought a house with a 15% mortgage. And over the next couple of years, added two more mortgages to it. <laughs> so I remember those very ugly days. Oh, yeah. I mean, people were like, wow, I got a great mortgage. It's only 20%. You know, <laughs> it's like, so, you know, I'll, in 25 uh, years, I'll actually make payments. So I'll tell you my side story. I bought a house up on Cape Cod, uh, right on the beach, on a cliff, overlooking the water. It's wonderful. 17% mortgage. I'm now going to the bank for the closing, the closing. We went to the closing and the bank informed me and the present owner of the house that the bank didn't have the money. I had a guarantee. What, what do they call that? Uh, the, when your bank gives you a guarantee on the mortgage, <laughs> they didn't have the money. Uh-huh. Because in Cape Cod, there's a lot of Portuguese people who go home for the summer, home to Portugal. Right. Take all their money with them. Right. And empty the banks. So <laughs> it turned out that my business bank had a loan, my mortgage bank, the money to give me to give to the owner. It was very complex. Oh, and yeah. And this, and this, this happens every day. What's that? Oh, yeah. And this happens every day because what what people don't even realize generally is that the Fed funds rate is literally the rate that banks charge each other for loans. And every single day, every bank in the country basically says, OK, we've made these commitments. We have to have money in the bank to cover them, which we don't often have. So then they have to borrow from another bank. And there are banks that we've never heard of that will never be a consumer bank. That's all they do is loan money to other banks. And it's just like, well, I'd like to bank with you. I'm terribly sorry. You are not a bank. Go away, peasant. We only loan to other banks. Who are broke. Who are broke. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I believe those are called bridge loans. Yes, they are. They are. And they're not for a bridge. That's... This Amazing. is amazing. Until the federal government gets involved with their industrial policy. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and that and that's the other interesting <laughs> development, because as was pointed out by Tim, we don't normally do that. We are about the only country in the world that doesn't. Uh, we have been the paragons of trade virtue for decades, you know, that it's the market that should determine and trade should be open and protectionism is a bad thing. 
we now have three very substantial pieces of legislation that are going in exactly the opposite direction. And we have joined the club. We have the Infrastructure Act, which is basically to be pouring money into infrastructure. We have the Inflation Reduction Act, which has nothing to do with inflation or reduction, but is promoting manufacturing in the United States through mostly subsidies. And then we have the CHIPS Act, which does the same thing, because we've finally kind of come to the conclusion that everybody else is playing this protectionist game except us. And so maybe we should be paying attention to it as well. And and it's prompted by a lot of the, the global tensions. I mean, just one dumb example, but the Europeans and the Americans are both dealing with it. China is retaliating against us by restricting the export of germanium and gallium. So critical elements for batteries. You can't do the electric thing, you can't do phones without germanium and gallium. Both of these are byproducts of aluminum and zinc production. So now Europe and the United States are turning to our domestic aluminum and zinc producers saying, if we pay you, will you produce germanium and gallium because we can't get it from China anymore? And they're like, cross my palm with silver and I will do what I can. And so suddenly it's like, well, why not? Let's go ahead and make this stuff because A, the government's going to pay us for it. B, we can charge out the nose for it because nobody can get it except from us. Winner, winner. Yeah, we're all over it. And it's like, meanwhile, the people who are extolling the virtue of batteries are like, did the battery go up by two or three times in cost because of this no probably four times in cost because of this so you know we're now in the industrial policy game and it has its advantages and disadvantages the biggest challenge is that we're bringing manufacturing back to the u.s and we don't have enough jobs for the ones who are already here <laughs> so it's like please come back to the united states we don't have any workers well, maybe I can like round up my Chinese workers and bring them with me. <laughs> so. or, or we can have an immigration policy. I know. This country doesn't have. And maybe right. we can bring some Ukrainian talented workers over here to fill the gap of the Gen Zs who don't want to work. So they say. <laughs> exactly. And it's like, and even more to the point, because you know, the Ukrainians are a prime example of how challenging immigration has become because countries get very excited about the potential of this new workforce, except that 98% of the Ukrainians are saying, we don't want to move here. As soon as our country is at peace, we're moving home. And so don't count on us staying because we want to go back and rebuild. Where we will end up finding the most lucrative recruiting is probably going to be Africa, because it's a well-educated population now, relatively. They've put a lot of emphasis in it. And when you realize that 65% of the African population is under the age of 25, you have this massive youth population. They've educated them, and now it's like, oh, now they need jobs, right? Yep, well, you're not going to find them in Uganda and Zambia and and Zimbabwe, which I they're going to move. So we've seen it already in things like healthcare and 
So it's just a matter of time before we're swamped by Nigerian economists. However, <laughs> however, the Chinese have made a significant financial input mm -hmm. in Africa. Yep. Since they will be taking the Nigerians and the Kenyans back to China because their economy is in the toilet and they're going to need workers and they have an aging population just like we do. They're going to need people. They have two problems, which are going to be very difficult to overcome. The African politicians and the press refer to the Chinese as the new colonialists. And they said, these people treat us exactly the way the British and the French and the Germans and the Portuguese treated us. They won't give us good jobs. They do all the good work themselves. All they want to do is sell their crap to us and take our natural resources. Then when they've had the experience of people being brought back to China, the Africans report, wow, do you know how racist that country is? They do not like black people. They do not like people who are not Chinese. You know, and it's not like we have the best record in the world, nor does Europe, but we're a whole lot more accommodating. And when the polls are taken in Africa, where would you like to work? For reasons that are pretty understandable, number one is Europe. Number two is the U.S. And China is not even in the top 10. Hmm. That's interesting. It's interesting. That's what I was, uh, that's what I've been reading, Chris. So uh, uh, your remarks are spot on. Very good. Tim and I, can, we, we, we collaborate before this game. What are you reading? You know, <laughs> usually I have to quit, have to put down the comic book and read something useful. So, <laughs> Chris, our economy, which I describe as the Eeyore economy, just seems to be kind of, oh, oh yeah, we're kind of moving. <laughs> Maybe. We're not we're not doing too bad. I mean, what's been interesting is how consistently we've been predicting recession and how consistently we miss it. I mean, the economists were saying third quarter of 2022. Nope, we grew at 2.6. Okay, fourth quarter of 2022 for sure. We grew at 2.9. Okay, absolutely for sure. First quarter of 2023 recession. We grew at 2.1. Okay, second quarter. By God, it's going to be a recession in second quarter. We're growing at 2.3. So it's like, okay, why do we keep missing recession? Well, part of it is that there's still a lot of money. It's still being, you know, it's part of why that whole neutral rate thing came up. Um, and we still have a lot of retail spending. Americans are weird when it comes to reacting to downturns. We are very different from Europe and Japan. When they see a threat, they stop spending. They stop, they just don't wanna be risk takers. So they save. We go exactly the opposite direction. Our logic seems to be there's inflation. Therefore, things are going to be more expensive. I'd better buy now. I might lose my job later. If I don't have a job, then I can't buy that big screen TV, so I better buy it now, because then when I lose my job, I'll have the big screen TV to watch. So we actually increase retail spending. That's certainly healthy of us. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you have to understand the mantra of the United States is instant gratification is not quick enough. <laughs> yeah, find something faster. 
<laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, Chris, absolutely for sure, third quarter of 2023, there's a recession. Nope, I'm I'm sticking to my optimistic attitude. I think that we're going to get through the rest of the year with over 2% growth. I think what we're going to be looking at is some sector recessions. I mean, you can definitely see some downturns. You know, if you're in the construction business and you're working on office buildings, good luck. But if you're doing warehousing, you're in good shape. Automotive is still very strong. Warehouse and distribution in general is strong. Aerospace is booming again because the airlines are screaming for more planes. I mean, doesn't Boeing is working three shifts and trying to figure out if they can, you know, annex Winfield, Kansas and build more. I mean, so we're seeing a lot of expansion in certain areas. So I think we're going to get through the year with nothing more than a kind of a mild slowdown and some sectors hurting. I mean, even lodging and entertainment's coming back. Um, so. Well, actually the ISM services report indicated that. Yeah. Entertainment and everybody's going out and spending money and running up that credit card. Oh yeah. You know, the hell with paying it back because you don't pay it back. You don't pay it back. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, and, and then. debt. People can just sit there and say, well, I'm not going to pay my credit card because it identifies as a student loan and and I <laughs> I, I don't want to pay. There you go. That's right. <laughs> Let's talk about automotive for a moment. Now when I'm reading, you know, the great push to the EV, the electric vehicle, and this is such a great idea. It'll make us more green and there'll be less pollution, except there'll be no place to charge them. <laughs> right, exactly. The two biggest challenges for expansion of the electric, and we realize it's only about 6% of the fleet right now. One is that charging issue. You know, which do you do first? Do you bring the charging stations in hoping that people will buy electrics or do you wait till they buy electrics and then you've got a reason for it's chicken and egg? The other more pressing problem is that much of what's required for those batteries is coming from China. It's coming from places that we don't have a great relationship with, and that drives up the cost. You might have talked about germanium and gallium, but there's concerns kind of all the way across the board. And then there's the fact that in the life cycle of a car, there's a third owner. There's the owner that buys the really used car who's looking for one that is quite cheap. If they buy an electric that's at that point, which is generally like 150,000 miles or above, that is precisely when you have to buy a new battery, which is an eight to $10,000 investment. So the person who's buying the cheap car says, I'm not going to buy a cheap car that I have to put eight grand into for a new battery. <clears throat> so you've got a, a real issue with what do you do with well-used electrics? They're not going to have a market. And that bothers the dealers because they're like, look, you know, not so much a secret. We make a lot of our money off used cars, not new ones. Do you think that somebody thought this idea out thoroughly? Uh, no. Um, there there may have been a hermit someplace in Coeur d'Alene that thought about this, but that, that would be about the end of it. Um, and it's it's so very typical. I mean, it's just, 
trying to figure out, I mean, you see this kind of stuff in lots of different sectors, like California was mandating that new homes had to have charging stations in the new homes. And at the same time, they wanted affordable housing. And the construction people were saying, um, putting in those charging stations is expensive, and that's going to affect the price of that home. So what you're telling us is that we need to ask the homeowner, which would they rather have, a charging station or a bathroom? <laughs> and most of them are saying bathroom, please, because I'm still driving a 1998 Ford Fairlane um, and don't need to charge it. Right. So speaking that we're talking about automotive, uh, the FAA has approved the first uh, auto flying airplane, uh, which is going to be selling for $300,000. But the second generation plane, which will come out three years later, somewhere is around 2030 or 2031, it's not going to be going for 300,000, but it's going to be going for 30,000. That's all we need is traffic jams in the air. Personally, right. I'm I'm not going to get excited until the the, the rocket jetpacks come out. I've been waiting for that since I was 10. You know, <laughs> I mean it's like it's like where are they? That's exactly right. Chris, what about rare earths? I mean, we're not talking about germanium and other challenges there, but what about the rare earths that China controls right. the, uh, the world market on? Yeah, and we have access to rare earths. We have them here. The challenge with rare earths is that they're very expensive to extract, and they're not environmentally friendly. The way that you get that stuff is you strip mine a whole lot of stuff to get a little bit of the rare earth out of it. And China has no problem in strip mining Xinjiang province. I mean, it displaces thousands of Uyghurs, which they want to do anyway. We're not so thrilled about the possibility of turning Montana into a gigantic strip mine lake. Um, and and that's the problem. We can get it, but it's expensive and it's not going to be environmentally popular and there's going to be a lot of opposition to it. So it's on the flip side, the Chinese make a lot of money off of shipping out rare earths and they need that money. They're not in as good a shape as they used to be. So there's still an incentive for them to sell it, but it's just going to be at what price? As we kind of approach the end of this uh, show, Chris, what kind of condition is China in and how are they doing with selling to Europe? Uh, Working with Africa, we've slowed down purchases, I think, with them. What's yeah. Yep. Yeah. China is experiencing some fairly kind of adult problems. They have moved from being a developing country to a developed country, and now they have those same problems. They have 20% unemployment among educated youth. They spent a lot of money educating that population, but they don't have enough jobs for them. And now you have a very disgruntled group of educated young people who are saying, look, I was promised a future and I have gone to college for four or five years and I'm selling wontons on the street. I mean, what what the heck happened? <clears throat> the other issue is that they tried to move to being a more consumer based economy so that they weren't as dependent on exports. But to do that, you have to pay people more. So China's advantage as a low-cost production platform has eroded, 
And that's one of the reasons that India is growing so fast. Vietnam is growing so fast. They're picking up the slack from China. The country of the future, and I know this is said about almost every country, but given the dynamics right now, India is is poised to really go where it has wanted to go for a while, which is to kind of supplant China as everybody's favorite investment location. Has a lot of advantages, has disadvantages too. The biggest problem is their infrastructure is not very good. China's is excellent. But on the other hand, if you're doing business in India, the language of India is English. And it's a whole lot easier to do business there than it has traditionally been in China. Well, I appreciate what you're saying about the language in India is English, sort of. Uh, sort of, yeah. Well, the the British would say the same thing about us. Um, <laughs> they would be like, um, you took a perfectly good language and you ruined it. Um, <laughs> so. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. The first time I visited England, I was astonished by how well people spoke. Exactly. <laughs> and how easily they could identify where we were from. You know, it's like, oh, my, you'd be from Texas, aren't you? <laughs> and it's like, how'd y'all know? You know, so. <laughs> Well, Chris, we appreciate you being with us because you give us, I, I will tell you, you give us more accurate, factual, in-depth information than we've ever heard on the mainstream media news. I, I, just I know. Being here. I know. We, we, we have a corner on that market. You know, to be <laughs> honest, and there's a, a reason, actual reason for that, most economists are not independent. They work for somebody. They work for the government. They work for a bank. They work, and they've sort of got an obligation to stick to the company line. I am an independent. Armada has been my creation with Keith Prather for 24 years, and we don't really answer to anybody except our wives. Um, and for the most part, they leave us You're alone. You're not doing real well with that either. <laughs> <laughs> that That's true. She's been talking to your wife. I can tell. Yeah, uh, so. right. <laughs> well, Chris, thanks for being with us. And we appreciate Chris being with us each month to, to give us more of the real deal. We appreciate you listening to manufacturing talk radio. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel and visit our website or catch us on any of your favorite podcast listening platforms. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. We'll see you next month. All right. See you later. That's our show for today. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to support the show, please like and subscribe, share on social media, or leave a review. You can find us on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Rumble, or your favorite podcast app. Visit us online at mfgtalkradio.com for our other episodes. We have also included links to our advertisers below. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.